Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now tonight we're in the fifth in our sermon series on the Minor Prophets, and we're in God's Word at the prophet Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. That's page 791 in your Pew Bible. Now as we begin our study of Haggai, it's important that we set the context of his prophecy in a detailed introduction. Now, why do we do this? It's because you yourself will be strengthened in your knowledge of the external evidence that supports the scriptures. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is is that Haggai's prophecy can be dated precisely. We know the exact day he started. Each day he preached after that and the day that he finished. He preached first to the leaders and to the people on August 29th, 520 B.C. And then he did this for a 15-week period. It's there in verse 1 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Now we know from the evidence from well over a hundred Babylonian texts that the Darius listed here is Darius the first, who ruled from 521 to 486 BC. And it's from those same texts and new moon tables that we can calculate from the astronomical data and synchronize the old lunar calendar of those days with our modern solar calendar. So the results are accurate to within a 24-hour day. Haggai preaches for just under four months in the midst of a national crisis. And when the crisis ends, he then disappears from history. Now, what was the crisis that became the foundation for his sermon series in those 15 weeks? Well, we need some background to answer our question. We have to go back about 100 years before Haggai's time. It is when the Neo-Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar began a series of military campaigns west from the Tigris and Euphrates region toward the Mediterranean Sea that transformed the ancient city kingdom of Babylon into a large empire. In just eight years, from 605 to 597 BC, he swept west 
to the eastern Mediterranean, forcing many city kingdoms of the region to accept Babylonian authority and pay an annual tribute to them. He then, in a series of battles, decisively defeated the Egyptian empire under the pharaohs. And to imagine what that was like, remember, at this time, the Egyptian empire of the pharaohs was thousands of years old. It is as if it had existed from the beginning of time, and within a short series of years, it falls to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it was in the end of his struggle with the Egyptians that Nebuchadnezzar dealt with the kingdom of Judah. Contrary to the warnings of Isaiah and Jeremiah and the earlier minor prophets, to keep faithful to God, the kings of Judah made defensive alliances with Egypt. It seemed very practical to do this. Egypt had always existed. Surely it was a wise move to align yourself with the Egyptian empire. However, they ended up on the losing side. And before his final push into Egypt, Nebuchadnezzar had to secure his rear and his lines of supply. So Jerusalem was besieged and then surrendered. Its king is punished. His family is slaughtered. And a vassal king replaced the king who led the resistance against the Babylonians. So that a surviving extended royal family, the upper classes of the kingdom of Judah, and the educated elites are deported to Babylon as prisoners. This is how Daniel chapter 1 begins. And then, once again, a second alliance with Egypt as they tried to rebel against Babylonian authority that came ten years later. And the Babylonian army makes a second siege of Jerusalem under orders that this trouble spot must be destroyed. And so Jerusalem falls in 586 B.C. And the temple, the symbol of God's presence, is completely leveled down. The spoils of war are carted off to Babylon. With the middle class remnant of survivors from the city, Jerusalem is in ruins. And its surrounding area is left to a few scattered farming settlements that remain. Just the peasants are left in the land. And this is the Babylonian captivity that we read about in the Old Testament. About 70 years later, in 539 BC, the new Persian Empire, under King Cyrus, conquers the Babylonian Empire. And what is critical for the Jews is that the Persians have a different imperial strategy from the Babylonians and the Assyrians that preceded them that destroyed Samaria and northern Israel. Cyrus's imperial strategy is a respect for local cultures 
and local traditions. He reverses the policy of forced integration of the conquered into Babylonian culture that the book of Daniel describes for us so well. In Ezra, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, we read of the decree of Cyrus. The Jews of Babylon may return to their native land. They may rebuild their city and their temple in Jerusalem. And so when you go and read Ezra chapters 3 and 4, you find out what happened. About 50,000 people returned to the area in a series of three emigrations. With Jerusalem still in ruins and uninhabitable, they settle in the surrounding hillside towns. And work begins almost immediately to rebuild the temple. There is a great enthusiasm in those early days when the foundation is laid. Old men who went as boys to Babylon weep because they have lived to see the day that the temple begins to be rebuilt. And young men shout triumphantly as the work progressed. But then things began to go wrong that curbed their enthusiasm and hindered further work. There was opposition from the people groups that had been resettled in the area as part of the earlier Assyrian and Babylonian imperial policy. These groups had settled and married and raised families for several generations amongst the few Jewish survivors that remained after 586. These groups had insisted that they should help rebuild the temple. After all, they said, didn't they all worship the same God? But there is the problem. God's word in the Old Testament is very clear. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we read of King Solomon's apostasy in syncretism as he combines his worship of the true God of Israel with the foreign gods of his wives. And the subsequent history of the kings repeats that original apostasy. And the prophets had taught that it was Israel's relationship with other pagan nations through alliances and marriages that had brought idolatry and apostasy into Israel and brought down God's judgment that resulted in the exile. They had failed to trust the Lord, the prophets told them. They had opted for the pragmatic and the political. But now... Renewed with a fresh appreciation of God's promise fulfilled in their return, the Jews are not about to make the same mistake twice. They would not divert God's glory from some impure facsimile of these other peoples. And so they refused their help and their participation. So what happens next? Well, these rival people groups reveal their true nature. They actually are haters 
of the pure word of God. And they hated any people that remained faithful to him. So they harassed and discouraged the Jews directly in one obstacle after another. They quietly and deceitfully bribed the local Persian officials to block the Jews' flow of trade and essential materiel for the building. And then in false accusation, they alleged a conspiracy to the Persian court in Susa itself. The petition said that the purpose of the restoration of the temple was to create a rallying point of rebellion against Persian rule, just like they had done under the Babylonians. And so criminal harassment, bribery, the corruption of local government, and an allegation of a national conspiracy did the work. And so demoralized and discouraged, the work on the temple had stopped for 10 years. Now all of us can understand this. We've all passed unfinished buildings where weeds grow and the wood is stained or the metal rusts in the rain and there's graffiti all over the big sign with the picture of the exciting future home of and we know that it's all gone down into ashes. That is where the Jews were at this time. The nation was in crisis. Doubt began to grow. It would have been better if we had stayed in Babylon. What was I thinking in leaving all that security behind? Does it sound familiar? It's the very way of thinking the Jews had in the wilderness. Why did we leave Egypt? Where we could have stayed secure and safe under the pagan empire of the Egyptians. But God is working, my dear friends. He's working here in the prophet Haggai. You see, God providentially brings together Ezra, Haggai, Zerubbabel, and Joshua and equip them for this special responsibility to rebuild. And so in the midst of the crisis, Haggai is the first to stand up. And he preaches. He preaches the word of God to these leaders and so to the people. The word of God always comes first, doesn't it? Now this afternoon I want us to take note of the sense of God's authority here as Haggai begins. And then notice how God goes straight to the heart of the problem. It is the human heart as he exposes the reason for their laziness. First, let's look at the sense of God's authority. It's right there. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai to the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now notice how Haggai expresses his authority as 
the messenger of the Lord of hosts, both externally in his title, it's there where you read the word of the Lord came by the hand, and internally by the power of the word of God. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now what does all that mean? Well, first look at the external title. By the hand of Haggai. Haggai is the messenger. He is the authorized delivery person. I mean, UPS, Federal Express, are all identified in their colors and insignias so that you have a guarantee that your letter or parcel will arrive in it to its exact destination and to the precise person you intended. And the more important the message, the more that insignia matters to you. We go to such great lengths to guarantee the integrity of our delivery. And it's all done. Millions of dollars are spent to guarantee to us, to assure us that the message you receive was delivered by the person himself. When that delivery person hands it to you, he acts as his agent. He has the same authority as the sender. And this is in Haggai's title, by the hand. And how is it confirmed? By God's internal power of conviction through the Holy Spirit. They are Haggai's words and they are God's words. It's the same way today in how God's minister preaches God's word to you. And you become conscious that God is speaking to your heart. That was for me, you say later. Now, who was speaking to you? It was the minister. But it's not the minister alone who is speaking to you. It is the minister who presents God's scriptures, God's word to you, faithfully, carefully, and clearly. They understand their responsibility as God's delivery person. And so in the same way, it is God who is speaking to you. And Haggai's word is a clear application of what God has already said in the Old Testament scriptures. The people are acting in the same way. The same sins of the heart are rising to the surface in their actions. And they are greatly discouraged and wish they were back in Babylon. And so the power of God's word is preached and they become convicted of their sin. You see, my dear friends, when God speaks to your heart, it is a kindness from him. There are times at the church door where a minister will hear, has someone been speaking to you about me? But of course, that's not true. No one has been speaking to a minister, but it is God speaking to you. Have you ever considered that God could choose another way? He could expose your thoughts, 
your actions, your intentions to public view and bring you into shame, but instead kindly and gently. He whispers in your heart and has a word for your life. Haggai does the same. It's two specific people here, isn't it? These two leaders, Zerubbabel, the first governor, and Joshua, the first high priest. They were the ones who were in the first caravan to return to the land. And so these men are critical for what follows. Their leadership decides whether the temple will be rebuilt or not. And so Haggai speaks, thus says the Lord of hosts. And with those words, he exposes their laziness. Do you see the title, the Lord of hosts, there in verse 2? Now the choice of his title sets God's trajectory in the message that follows. We know this because the Old Testament prophets use this term, the Lord of hosts, in times of real crisis. And you find that in the prophets, it's used at those times when apostasy and idolatry are rampant in the land. This title describes God as the head of the host of heaven who comes to reassert his name against false gods. The Lord of hosts means he is the Lord of all powers, seen and unseen, in the universe and in heaven. He controls everything. His word has authority. The weather obey his commands. The whole universe is in his grasp. There is none greater. And why has God used this title? Because the people have once again drifted into apostasy. This discouragement that they felt that has brought the temple building to a standstill for this long is grounded in a false understanding of God. They have become like the pagans around them. Rather than hearing God's word, and be obedient to his command to build the temple, they start discerning God's actions as somehow being hidden in the events around them. Because things have been going wrong, God surely must be displeased. If if he were pleased with us, things would be going right. What do we have here, my dear friends? We have here the pagan mindset that somehow we must find some way to make God smile upon us. If things are going wrong, I must have done something wrong, for God is angry with them. You see, these Jews of the day forgot that they were children of God's covenant, who were called to faith and obedience in what God had already done and what God had promised to do. They allowed their circumstances to persuade them that our Heavenly Father was either uninterested or impotent 
to protect them. And so they responded in that way. They were just like the kings of old, pragmatic, practical, looking for various ways to improve their condition and not looking to the Lord of hosts for their help. And so they became lazy. They became lethargic. Now look at the wording of God's denunciation in verse 2. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Do you see the sobering rebuke in those first words? Let me ask it this way. How does our Heavenly Father usually address you and me, his children? He calls us my people. We are his. We are his people. So do you see the accusation now? These people. Not my people. These people. Their outward expression of indifference exposes the inward apostasy of their heart, and so God zeroes right in on it. How can we know this? Because of the pride that's there. We understand the times, they're saying, and the time is not yet right to rebuild. Where is the reliance? Not on God's promises, but in their own mastery and understanding of events. They've judged the times apart from God's promise and his character. And second, there's a mask in a false piety here, a false religiosity in what they see. It's not built on what God has promised in his scriptures. It's as if they are saying, well, we're not saying we will never rebuild. We, we want to rebuild. But the time is not yet right. When the time is right, of course, then we will rebuild. Do you see the false humility there? And the spiritual language there? What is underneath? It's distrust. They no longer trust. They're setting conditions. When the time is right, then. When, then. They're putting God to the test. And so in doing so, they treat him with contempt. You see, when then thinking is so dangerous for the believer, it's the pagan heart we all have. We want to shift our circumstances so that ourselves feel better. What looks like wisdom in how you place a decision outside of yourself is actually very much within your control because you decide when the time is right. And this notion, this false show of wisdom, nurtures a spirit of procrastination. Now the application to our situation is simple because this sin is still present in each one of us. So we must ask ourselves an important question this afternoon. How do you discern God's favor 
God's grace in your life? Is it in events? Is it in the circumstances of your life? So when they're good or extraordinary, well, then I must have God's blessing. I'm within the Lord and walking in the Lord. But when they are not, when frankly they get very dark and very terrible, and you become cynical or lethargic or despondent, because somehow, in some way, I must not have God's blessing. I'm walking outside of the Lord in that way. Is that what you do? My dear friend, consider carefully, because you're living like a pagan of old. You're imagining that your heavenly father is withholding something from you, and so you distrust him. It is the devil's old lie. The very words to Adam was to say, somehow God is withholding something from you for your good. You can't trust him. This is why, my dear friends, the prosperity gospel is such a diabolical gospel because its focus is not on the providence and trust of God in his promises, but in our circumstances. My dear friends, you are children of God and you're called to trust God's character. We are commanded to trust in his promises and to remain obedient to him, no matter what the circumstances are, good or bad. And how do we know that we can trust him? Because he did not spare his only son. He went and died in your place. His son died for you. That is how much he is committed to you and your salvation. No matter what the times or the seasons of your life may be, we are called to trust and obey. Do you know the old hymn? Trust and obey. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You know, that is so true. God has made you, the believer, his temple, where God, the Holy Spirit, lives, and he's busy. His tools are never silent. Never mistake your sanctification with some dark, pagan understanding. Instead, realize your heavenly Father is at work in you to make you into the image of his Son because he intends to come and bring you into his presence where you will live with him forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.